Good morning. It is good to be home. I want to mention that um, I've been going to Israel now since uh, 1994, and every time we've gone, we've, I've come back. We've all come back. I just want to mention that because, you know, so often I, I talk to people and let them know that I go to Israel and they say, you go to Israel? I say, yes. I'm safer there. I feel safer there than I do here at home. And uh, safer in going because uh, there's great uh, uh, security protection in going. There's great protection security-wise for all the tours that go to Israel uh, throughout the land. Uh, and then there's tremendous uh, uh, security on the way home. So, yeah, it's, it's a good trip to go to. And I'm doing some research now for the next trip, which at this point may be in, in a year and a half, which would be November of uh, 2018. So uh, doing it too soon would be too soon. Especially for me, because I, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I need a little rest from this. The majority of the people that went on this past tour uh, were from Pastor Bob's church in uh, Calvary Chapel, Las Cruces. He should have been tour leader, but he made me tour leader, so I do all the work. So next time I'll make him tour leader, so I can actually rest a little bit. But it's a fun trip to go to, and I just want to let you know. I'll, I'll be showing some pictures and all in the next few weeks uh, as soon as I can get it all together and, uh, and provide them for you. But uh, just to let you know, it's a wonderful trip. One thing that I do want to mention is that um, it is true that you will look at the Bible completely different once you go, and primarily because when you're there, you actually see where you are in the Bible, in the scriptures, and you begin to read about what happened where you are. For example, a few weeks ago, we were talking about a place called Bethabara. Well, we were at Beit Abara, which is the same place where Jesus went to uh, get away from the ones that were chasing him, and uh, that was where he received that, that message from uh, Mary and Martha that their, their brother Lazarus was sick. It was there at Bethabara. It's the very place where John the Baptist had baptized Jesus, uh, right by the Jordan. You stand at a place where there, on one side are Israeli guards, on the other side are Jordanian guards. And yet, on both sides, people go in to the water just to realize this was probably the place where Jesus had been and where he had probably been baptized. So this is how the Bible comes alive to you. And uh, so I wanted to mention that because of the freshness of it to our own minds. Which brings us to this issue of Lazarus again. But this time we come to Lazarus now as a man who is alive because he has been raised by Jesus from the dead. And we continue on in our study of the Gospel of John in chapter 12 now. After what happened to Lazarus. I have to remind you that Jesus is moving toward the cross. He's closer now, about six days away from the cross. And so, let's read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 12 to begin our study. And then Jesus, six days 
before the Passover came to Bethany. Where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, there they made him a supper. And Martha served, as Martha always did. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. And there's reason for that to be mentioned by John. Because first of all, it wasn't in their house, as you shall see. And then took Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor or the fragrance of the ointment. And then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence or denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. I wanted to know what extravagant love would look like. And so I pursued the definition of extravagant as an adjective It is, and I quote, lacking restraint in spending money or using resources, exceeding what is reasonable or appropriate, absurdly exorbitant and or excessive. According to most standard definitions, to be extravagant is to spend much more than is necessary or wise. In effect, it is wasteful. Well, this got me to wonder, could the love of Jesus for us be considered as extravagant? Could the love of Jesus Christ for us and on our behalf, could could it be considered as extravagant? If we can focus our attention upon the cross of Jesus for just a moment, I want you to consider a few things. I want you to consider a bloody head from a crown of thorns driven with anger into Jesus' skull. I want you to consider two very wounded hands and wrists that involuntarily fight to support a collapsing body on Roman nails. 
I want you to consider a spear wound dug deep into his side. I want you to consider a twisted body distorted by the angle of the nail in his feet. How Jesus hung on the cross was not as we have oftentimes seen on crucifixes or pictures. But in fact, the bottom part of his body was twisted to, a, to where his knees were at an angle and, and his feet then were placed on the, on the cross and nailed. Painful, to say the least. Not to mention Jesus' body nearly indistinguishable, covered with stripes and lashes and gashes from a well-prepared whip with nails. Jesus bleeding profusely for the sin of the world. Knowing this, is there anything that needs to be said, anything else that needs to be said about the question, what is extravagant love? I have to conclude and declare to you that all this was, in fact, the extravagant love of Jesus accomplished for us. But now the question is, would it even be possible for us to show him extravagant love? Would it even be, would it even be possible for any of us to show him extravagant love. An, an acknowledged example is given to us in this passage of scripture today. An acknowledged example. But before we get to that and to our text, I want you to consider what has taken place so far. Jesus has raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, raised him from the grave, proving his power over death and life, which we would think would have everyone bowing to the Messiah of Israel in adoration and praise, right? I mean, raising the dead is a pretty big thing. Now we know, we, we know from the text in, in chapter 11 that a few people became believers because of this, but, but the religious leaders of Israel, they weren't letting go of their positions of power. They weren't letting go of their positions. They weren't letting go of their power. And certainly they didn't want to let go of their prosperity. If you go back a, a, a few verses to John 11, verse 47, and we're going to read a, a few verses here, just to kind of get us caught back up where we were before, we're told then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council when they had heard that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And, uh, and they gathered together and they said, what do, we, what do we for this man do with many miracles? Now, if you remember, we mentioned this was a confession. This was a confession that said this man raised the dead. And he's done many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. They were more concerned about their place in the nation and the nation itself than they were about people coming to the Messiah. 
And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, you know nothing at all. That's a nice leader to have, you know, telling you, you bunch of idiots. He said, you know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us. In other words, it is beneficial for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Now stop and think. Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying. But Caiaphas was proclaiming prophecy. Both in proclaiming and in fulfilling. And notice in verse 51, John picks up on that and says, This spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. And that would probably include us too. And then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. So what we learn of this is that Jesus was their problem, capital P, problem. Jesus was their problem since they cared more about their political status and power on earth than they did about whether Jesus really was sent by God as the Messiah of Israel. Their fear was that Jesus would get such a following that even Rome would be threatened and take it out on them. Jesus was the proverbial thorn in their side. And that would be the Jewish religious leaders. But Jesus also became the focal point of the high priest prophecy. Capital P, prophecy. He was their problem. But he was also the focal point of their prophecy. And again, he was high priest. People would look to him to hear from him. Any declaration coming from that high priest, if indeed he had searched this out from God himself, but yet God allowed this for him to make this particular proclamation. Why should the nation be destroyed? Let this one man die for the people. Wow. Caiaphas didn't even know how right he was. He did not know how right he was. And so Jesus became not only the, their problem and, and, and the focal point of their prophecy, but he also became the object of their plot. Capital P, plot. He, Jesus, and the Sanhedrin, the council... We're on a collision course. In the last few verses of chapter 11 let us know that they had their spies looking for Jesus. They went out and told all the people, listen, if you see where Jesus is, let us know. We want to come to him. If they had post offices back then, Jesus' would, picture would be there in the, in, in, in the FBI's top ten. Public enemy number one. But we also learned that from that time on, Jesus' course was altered. The course that he had had before was now different. It had changed. His public outreach was now a private inreach. His emphasis on signs and wonders and the public preaching of the gospel and the kingdom of God shifted to more intimate discourses, mostly with his disciples. His travel was reduced greatly to the area surrounding Jerusalem, and from here on, he would stay there. Six days. 
to Passover. All in all, what Jesus was doing was preparing to leave, not leave Jerusalem, leave this earth. He was preparing to leave, but he was also preparing his disciples for his departure. In the other Gospels, we are told that Jesus had sat down with his disciples and, and, and told them at least three times, at least three times from what we read, made it very clear to them, I am going to be arrested, I am going to be taken and crucified, and on the third day I will rise again. Now all of this in light of and in context to the raising of Lazarus and the time that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The first time he tells them, they don't understand. The next couple of times they were kind of concerned. But the last time he tells them that, that this is going to happen, now their concern is, oh my no, oh Lord, what's going to happen? Even Peter himself, who was always the strongest and the bravest, as it were, would say, They're not gonna, that's not going to happen. didn't know what he was saying. He had to prepare his disciples for his departure. And as, as, as Passover neared, the Lamb of God began his final preparations before he lays down his life and takes it up again. Remember this. He lays down his life, but he takes it up again. He promised it. And we know on this side of the cross, he did it. And now we see a great expression of extravagant love that takes place in the midst of some much-needed fellowship. Fellowship. Going back to verse 1 of our text in John 12, it says, In Jesus' six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him and then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, a pound of, of, of pure nard, which is an ointment. I'll talk about it in a moment. But I want to mention the amount of it. Uh, it would probably be close to 12 ounces as we would know wet ounces. Uh, that's a lot for a pure oil or pure uh, essential oil as it were it's 0.7 liters if you think in liters you have to kind of do that when you go to Israel because they don't, they don't do pounds and all of that kind of stuff very costly and she anointed the feet of Jesus it tells us wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the, with the odor, the fragrance of the ointment. Not many of us would ever think to ask this question or would even want to for that matter, but what would your plans be if you knew you only had six days before going to your death? This isn't an answer from some website or social media platform, by the way. But wouldn't you choose what is most important to you? 
Wouldn't you choose to do what is most important to you if you knew you had six days left on this earth? Jesus chose to spend some quality time with his closest friends outside of the circle of his disciples. Those who were most dear to him as we learned about in the, at the beginning of chapter 11. When Mary and Martha had sent Jesus that message, Lazarus, the one you love, is, is, is sick. And we're told and reminded how much he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, while from our text we are aware of the presence of Martha, Lazarus, and Mary here in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12, the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark reveal some important additions not only to the guest list but also to the activities that were taking place at this particular supper. If you'll turn to Matthew 26, I'd like for you all to do that. If you're kind of like uh, not, uh, you've got your, your, your phone Bible or whatever, look like you're flipping pages on it just to make me feel good. I just, just to let you know, I, I, I'd rather, you know, read one of these. I'm just old-fashioned that way. But I do have a Bible on my phone. I have a Bible on my iPad, you know. Just, just to let you know, I'm... I'm, I'm almost up to the 20th century. We're in the 21st, right? Okay. Matthew 26, look at verse 6. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, so now we're in Bethany, but we're not at Lazarus's home. We're at the home of Simon the leper. I can assure you right now, he's no longer a leper. If you read Mark 1, verse 40, it's probably the same Simon that was, uh, the same person that was healed is, is the one mentioned there. But for people to understand who and where Simon is mentioned, it is his house. And there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment. It's interesting that Matthew does not mention her name. But that's not important, at least in Matthew, Matthew's text, nor in Mark's text. We'll get to that in a moment. But there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box. And by the way, the box here is really not a box as much as it was a flask. A very precious ointment, this spikenard that is mentioned in John. And notice he, she poured it on his head. Now that's different. Because in our account in John... She anointed his feet. And we'll get back to that in a moment. This is not a contradiction, by the way, because the most common thing that is done in a, in a, in a home environment of that sort, in a, in a supper of this type with guests and all, is that whatever kind of ointment or oil that was used for refreshing was always put upon the head first. It was the most common thing. The most uncommon thing, though, was if someone would put that ointment on the feet We'll get back to John in a minute. So there came unto, this, unto him a woman. She had this ointment. She poured it on his head as he sat at meat, which means as he sat reclining at the table of supper. 
They didn't sit at tables with chairs. They laid on blankets and couches and, and all, and, and, and they were able to lay one against each other. And given the situation, Mary was able to anoint his head, as, as Matthew uh, gives account of, and then also would anoint his feet. But when his disciples saw it, now take note that it says the disciples saw it. They had indignation. They were really upset. Saying, to what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. So Matthew gives us a very general picture. And then we begin to narrow that picture down a little bit in Mark 14, verses 1 through 5. So go to the Gospel of Mark 14. And as you're turning there, let me, let me just say it's really such a, a, a refreshing thing to note that as we are studying the Gospel of John, we're not too often going back and forth between John and the what's called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because those pretty much recorded all of the same things that happened. John records a whole different picture, a whole different perspective, and a, a lot of different events. But when they do come together, that has to be very significant for us to look at in this manner. So Mark 14 verse 1 says, after two days was the feast of the Passover. Don't let that confuse you. This is not talking about the timing of, of Jesus with his disciples and with his friends. This is dealing with the chief priests. So don't let this confuse you or don't let this kind of seem as if it's a contradiction. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. We'll deal with that later. And being in Bethany, notice, in the house of Simon the leper. So we're not dealing again with the time frame that pertains to the chief priests from that statement, we're just dealing now with the, the very same account that Matthew already uh, uh, gave us. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. So, so Mark, uh, and by the way, the gospel of Mark is really the apostle Peter's perspective given to Mark to write down as a gospel. Okay, so it's, it's really from Peter's point of view. So Simon the lepers, uh, Jesus sat at me. There came a woman having a, the alabaster box of ointment of spikenard. So now that's made um, clear. Very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some, notice Matthew said there were the disciples, all generally speaking. But now Mark brings it down to this. And again, Peter's perspective. There were some, some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence or 300 denarii and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. So they murmured against Mary who anointed Jesus with this very expensive ointment. So a bit of tension of this sort never makes for a refreshing and satisfying meal, to say the least. I mean, when you sit down for a meal, you want to talk about nice things, good things. You don't want to argue about sports or politics or anything else. You just want to enjoy the meal because, you know, if you don't, and if you get into that situation where you're all of a sudden arguing about things, then instead of bringing out, you know, some, some nice uh, dessert and stuff, they bring out the Tums <laughs> or the Rolades or whatever it is that you use. 
So these two gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark, let us know that that this dinner took place in the house of one Simon the leper, who, as I said, is believed to have been healed by Jesus in Mark 1, verse 40. I'm sure that the dinner itself was a joyous occasion initially because of the presence of Jesus and a living and breathing Lazarus with Martha gladly serving, as she always did. And Simon was was probably ecstatic to be hosting such a wonderful fellowship, which included the disciples of the Lord, because they were there. But back to the tension, back to Mary. In verse 3 of our text now, back in John, the Apostle John, obviously present at this dinner, details the very activity of Mary taking a generous amount of costly ointment, a a fragrant oil of spikenard that was prepared from the roots and stems of an aromatic herb from northern India, an anointing, not just his head, which was the common thing, but anointing the feet of Jesus with this oil, which which was not a common thing because she assumed the lowly position of a slave who would normally take care of the feet of the guests of honor. Having wiped the oil with her hair was also something unusual for a woman to do, but unusual for Mary to do. For respectable women never unbraided their hair in public. They just never did that. But what she did in doing that and wiping and uh, wiping that oil from Jesus' feet was a simple act of humility. But Mary had always shown us her desire to be at the feet of Jesus. Somebody didn't read the sign up there. I don't know who it is. I'm not looking. Now, some have said that Mary did this in gratitude for what Jesus did in raising her brother Lazarus from the dead. And that would certainly be partly true. I, I couldn't think that she wouldn't be gra- grateful to the Lord for raising her brother. But given the sequence in John's gospel, what Mary did acts as a confession. It acts as a confession. She was obviously aware and well acquainted with Jesus' ultimate destiny. I don't know about you, but I wonder sometimes how many people really listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I really wonder how many of you really listen and hear what is being said. I'm not coming down on you. All I'm saying is that sometimes we come and we go, 
And if we haven't really heard, we don't take anything with us that will affect us for the day to come. But Mary obviously listened. She listened better than the disciples did. Because they were all confused when Jesus told them that he was going to have to be crucified, that he would die, and then he would be buried, and three days later he'd be risen from the dead. She knew who Jesus was by the very fact that he said, Lazarus, come forth, and her brother came out of the grave. She believed him. She listened to who Jesus was, not just to what he did. Her gift, what she did with this precious ointment in its most pure sense, not watered down, not diluted in any way, that's what made it so costly. Her gift was also to prepare Jesus' body for death. Her, her extravagant gift, extravagant gift of love to Jesus was given before it was too late. Now think about that for a moment. How often times do we do things and, or not do things and say, you know, I'm going to do this, but it, it may be too late. It may be too late to respond when Jesus says, go and talk to someone. And you don't do it. And you say, but it's too late now. She did what she did before it was too late. You know, Mary was not at the cross. Mary was not at the tomb when the other Marys that went to, to go take more spices, you know, to help to... Uh, uh, preserve uh, Jesus' body or to keep it from that, that uh, uh, time of uh, deterioration which they thought well he's dead and we have to bring more spices this, is, uh, this gives us a couple of indications here when Lazarus died he hadn't been, he hadn't been uh, 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 treated properly in other words his body was put in, wrapped and put in the grave they hadn't used the processes of the spices and all. We know that because the fourth day, Martha said to Jesus, hey, listen, Lord, you open that up. I mean, he stinketh, right? The whole idea behind the, you know, the preservation and the uses of the spices was because of that very reason. Obviously, they hadn't done that. Because Jesus was buried the way he was, uh, there was some preparation done, but not uh, to, the, to the extent that, that the women uh, felt that they needed to go again. But, but this Mary didn't go there. You know why? She had already given the ointment that was precious to Jesus before he dies. It comes down to this. She worshipped her Lord and Savior, by sacrificially laying down her riches, her oil. By the way, we kept hearing a number, 300 pence or 300 denarii, 
One denarii, by the way, is a day's wage. 300 denarii is a year's wage. Can you imagine yourself giving your yearly wage for the most costly ointment that there can possibly be on the earth? She gave it all. She anointed his head. She anointed his feet. She was worshiping her Lord by sacrificially laying down her riches, her oil, her all, her everything. But she also laid down her glory. She laid down her glory, her unbraided hair, at the feet of Jesus. And what happens to a person who worships the Lord like this? What happens to a person who worships the Lord like this? They not only take on the fragrance of Jesus himself. She takes her hair. She wipes his feet. Now she has the fragrance of Jesus. They not only take on the fragrance of Jesus themselves, but they also fill wherever they are. They fill wherever they go with the fragrance of Jesus. May I ask you, is wherever you go being filled with the fragrance of Jesus because you're there? None of us like to leave our house smelling like five days ago. Do we? I don't think anybody's going to matter. <laughs> yeah, well, things matter. <laughs> Do we check our spiritual fragrance before we go out the door? Will we exude the fragrance of Christ in every place? Mary did. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us of our own lives in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17. It says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Oh, be careful of those who sound as if they were the ones who triumphed for Christ. None of us can triumph for Christ without Christ triumphing first for us. And that God himself has triumphed by sending his only begotten son, Jesus, to do what we could never do for ourselves. So Paul's words are so clear. Thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor, the fragrance of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death. And to the other the savor of life unto life and who is sufficient for these things are any of us able in and of ourselves 
to produce that fragrance of Christ. Who's sufficient for these things? I, I wasn't going to add verse 17, but I, I believe in light of the way we see the direction of much of the church today, I needed to add this verse for us to understand something. For we are, Paul says, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. You know, the Lord has called us to do one thing here, and that is to rightly divide the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, to teach it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, that we might have the whole counsel of God and to rightly divide it, to rightly understand it. But today there are many churches where you could go and, and, and you, don't hardly, you hardly ever see anybody carrying a Bible, not even in their phones. They might pull out their phones because they say, now, you know, you can actually do some communicating with us now. If you want to send me a text or you want to send me a this or a that, send it to me now and I'll pick it up here while I'm drinking my coffee. At the, well, There's no pulpit anymore. For some, it's just a table with a coffee cup and a, you know, some notes and, 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 a, and a bench to sit on. What is that? <laughs> Where's the word of God? Where's the love of God's word? We draw God too harshly. We say, oh, well, you know, there's so much in the Bible that, you know, comes down against people. Well, you know, I'm not going to bow before people. I'm going to bow before God. Amen. I need to know what his word says. Because my life has to be lived right until Jesus comes. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. We are to worship in spirit and in truth. And we have no truth without the word of God. Folks, this morning, I want you to dig deep. I want you to dig deep into the heart of this servant Mary and realize that she had already understood something about Jesus. She understood that death would never and could never hold him because she believed he was the resurrection and the life. She worshiped at his feet. She knew who he was. The fellowship that I mentioned earlier wasn't just about this wonderful gathering of friends. It was about an even more intimate fellowship between Lord and servant, between master and slave, between Messiah and friend between Jesus and Mary. That fragrance permeated the rest of her life. That fragrance permeated everywhere she went. <laughs> Will the fragrance of Christ permeate wherever we go? Let's talk about the issue of fraud. <coughs> Consider, if you will, uh, the person of Judas. By the way, fraud, uh, the definition for fraud is a wrongful or criminal deception intended to result in financial or personal gain. Well, that fits Judas quite clearly here. Verse 4 of John 12, it says, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. Well, now what have we seen? Matthew, general. 
Mark, a little bit more specific. John, incredibly specific. It was Judas that spoke. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. By the way, not the same Simon the leper. Simon, Judas' dad. (laughs) Which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence or 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said not that he cared for the poor. Now this is John's commentary because he was there. And of course after the fact, now he knew the character of Judas. He says he, he, he didn't care for the poor. But because he was a thief. And had the bag. In other words, he had the money bag. He was the treasurer. He was chosen by everyone to be the treasurer. At least, if not chosen, he was certainly... They were confident that, you know, he was okay. And bear what was put therein. That, that word bear there means that he, that he carried it. But, but the word bear also has a connotation of one who's carrying it for themselves. Not for everybody else. Just so you know. And then said Jesus to... Judas, let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but for but me you have not always. So getting back for the moment to the other two gospel accounts, there is a way of narrowing down, as I said, uh, narrowing down the prime suspect, Judas Iscariot, from a list of the usual suspects, all of the disciples, so to speak. These passages give us an indication of the trust that was placed upon Judas by the other disciples to allow him the stewardship of the treasury. So understand, Matthew 26, 8 and 9, but when his disciples saw it, generally speaking, they had indignation saying, to what purpose is this waste? Did they all say it? John says, only Judas. But you know what the other disciples would always do? Judas speaks, and they had confidence that he was a good treasure. Judas is speaking. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. But was it then? Mark 4, 14, verses 3, and 5, 3 through 5. Being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came that, this woman with an alabaster box of ointment, a spikenard, very precious. He broke the box, poured it on his head, and there were some, some, that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. If this was an account that came from the, from the, uh, the understanding of Peter, then Peter's probably saying, well, it was, we weren't all of <laughs> there, but you know, one representing all of them is enough for all of them to be... Uh, considered as accomplices but then John as an eyewitness states clearly who the spokesman was without any doubt to which the others had confidently considered trustworthy enough to hold the purse strings and scrutinize any wasteful spending it was the hypocritical unbelieving disciple Judas and what a contrast between Judas and Mary Judas was the darkness, Mary was the light. Judas was not concerned about the poor. He was concerned about himself. And certainly Jesus knew his heart already. He knew. All of these things had to play out. 
for what we will see coming in the next few chapters. Listen to the words of Jesus now in all three accounts. Matthew 26.10, Jesus understood it. Understood what was going on here. And he said unto them, Why trouble you the woman? For she has wrought a good work upon me. The word good there in the Greek is a word that includes the understanding of a beautiful thing has happened. She has done a beautiful thing on me. Mark 14, 6, the same word. Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble her? She has wrought or produced or performed a good, beautiful work on me. And then Jesus, in John's account, says, let her alone against the day of my bearing. Now, who is he saying this to directly? Judas. Let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always you have with you. Can you hear Jesus saying this directly to Judas? The poor you have with you always. But me you have not always. I would almost see this as a very personal statement to Judas. You're poor, buddy. Spiritually. And you won't have me always because you'll turn your back on me. What the Lord was saying in this passage about the poor is that we can always be of service to the poor because they will always be with us. Time and again, when you read the scriptures, especially the book of Proverbs, there's a number of places in the book of Proverbs where it tells us how we are to care for the poor. You can read the law or go to the Torah. And read the law. We're told that we need to take care of the poor. Something that is, 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 is to be built into our service and worship of God. But our service, folks, listen carefully. Our service should never be a substitute for sitting at his feet. Because there are some people today who will do all kinds of things, all kinds of charities, all kinds of works, but never sit at the feet of Jesus. May I remind you of the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus has to point out to the churches, the seven churches of, of Asia Minor, Ephesus being the first one that he speaks to. And he commends them for their work. He commends them for the things that they were doing. But then he said, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. It was as if Jesus was saying to them, you have left sitting at my feet. And you take this activity as being more important than worshiping me. Our service should never be a substitute for sitting at the feet of Jesus. You remember Mary's sister Martha? 
Remember how she complained in the Gospel of Luke uh, to the Lord that Mary wasn't helping her in serving? You remember that? Luke chapter 10, verses 39 through 42. She had a sister called Mary, speaking of Martha, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. He was listening to Jesus. Mary was. But then Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, does thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her there, therefore, that she help me. In other words, get, kick her and get her in here. And Jesus answered and said unto her, and listen to this, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part. Mary has chosen that beautiful thing to do which shall not be taken away from her please don't consider Mary as lazy every time Jesus was in their midst you'd see Mary at, her, at, at his feet she was worshiping her Lord Mary didn't sit around when Jesus was off with his disciples here and there and everywhere, sitting there eating chocolates and, you know, watching soap operas or whatever. Wasn't doing that. She was doing her work. But when Jesus came, she worshipped him. She worshipped him. Lastly, let's deal with the fear of the religious leaders Verses 9 through 11, we'll try to do this as quickly as we can because we don't have a lot of time. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there. Now remember, at the end of chapter 11, they were telling the people, hey, if you know where Jesus is, you need to let us know. Much people of the Jews knew, therefore, that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only. Yeah, they, they came because Jesus was there, but more importantly, at least in this account, that, that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. They wanted, to, they wanted to see a guy that had been dead, now alive. This was the National Enquirer of the day. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Now, I've read some crazy things in the scriptures. Not crazy from the Lord, crazy about us. <laughs> this is crazy! Isn't it? The chief priest consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Let's kill this guy that just was raised from the dead. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Hello, who's the Messiah of Israel? The one who could raise people from the dead. Now they want to kill not only Jesus, but they want to kill the one that he raised from the dead. You know what that's called? Erasing the evidence. Isn't it amazing how blind people can be? A man was raised from the dead and they want to put him to death because people believe in Jesus because of him. I mean, this is the height of fear. Why do you think that the church is being persecuted the way it is across the world today? Because of this kind of fear. That the scriptures are correct. That the scriptures are right. That the scriptures are reliable. 
That the scriptures and the word of God are without error and we preach that. The religious leadership wanted to be seen as the people's saviors, but that could never be so. Preachers on TV and many times, although they don't want to say this, they want to be the people's saviors. They're not pointing people to Jesus, they're pointing people to themselves. But these religious leaders could never be the people's saviors. They were the biggest hypocrites and thieves among the nation, and the Lord would make that clear. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Matthew 23, read it all today. That's your homework. But Lazarus was used by God as a witness to lead many to their Messiah. So, let me ask you this. (laughs) Excuse me. What did Lazarus do to be this great witness? Nothing. He did nothing to be this great witness. May I say to you, this is what grace is all about. This is what grace is all about. We don't do anything to deserve what God has done for us. Now, Lazarus did lose his great clothes. Jesus raised him from the dead, and and he still had on his great clothes. He told the people around him to help him get out of those great clothes, and they did. and, And see, you have to understand something. People don't need to see us still wrapped up in our old life. They need to see that we've gotten rid of the old life and that our lives have changed. It's not about all the things we've given up to be Christians. It's not about that. It's about what God has done for you through his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has given us new life by which we can spend an eternity with him. I need to close very quickly here in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6 and conclude this message. Romans chapter 5, listen to the words of Paul in verses 6 through 9. Understand this, for when we were yet without strength, in other words, we were without Christ in this world. We thought we had our own strength, our own ways, our own wisdom. We were strong physically, maybe intellectually, but when we were without strength because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us. He demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Extravagant love. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Let me add Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Why did Jesus come to this earth? The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you know what extravagant love is? God showed it to us. God showed it to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. A crown of thorns, the nails in the hands, the spear in the side, the contorted body on a frame of, of wood, a nail in the feet, lashes covering head to toe. Extravagant love? Yes. But not one drop of blood wasted. Not one drop of blood wasted. Was Mary's love extravagant? She anointed his head. She anointed his feet with the most costly of oils. But not one drop was wasted because that was her worship to her God, to her King, to her Savior to her master. That's extravagant love. Maybe we should redefine the word extravagant in this case. That's how much he loves you. How much do we love him? How much will we worship him with? A little portion of a Sunday or with every breath that we take until he comes again. Let's pray.